Rarecast listeners, coming together to help each other is what the rare disease community does best. As the COVID-19 outbreak continues to spread around the world, you'll have questions. Global Genes has created a resource page with information to help. Please visit www.globalgenes.org to see the resource list. And if you have links to add, please send them to advocacy at globalgenes.org. Stay safe and remember, we're all in this together. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. number of rare diseases where a genetic mutation results in the deficiency of a, an enzyme or other critical protein that can lead to a progressive or a life-threatening condition. Patients have been treated with chronic administration of recombinant versions of the proteins they lack. While this provides benefit, it requires regular infusions or self-administered shots, is costly, and can be disruptive. Siglon is developing what it calls shielded living therapeutics in case cells that can be implanted to provide steady levels of the protein a patient lacks and free them from the need for constant administration of these biologics. We spoke to Rogerio Vivaldi, president and CEO of Siglon Therapeutics, about the company's living therapeutics, how it's able to protect these cells from attack from the immune system, and how they function once inside the body. Rosario, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about Sigalon, its technology to implant living cells for the treatment of chronic conditions, and its program in hemophilia A. Let's start with the technology itself, though. There have been long efforts to find ways to encapsulate cells. I think a lot of these efforts have centered on type 1 diabetes in the past and the implantation of islet cells. What have been the technical challenges in doing this? Yeah, a great question. So I would describe that the signal journey is really the result of more than 40 years of work and progress in developing implantable cell therapies to deliver durable functional cures for patients. Um, uh, A famous article in Science in 1980 was describing that uh, a particular allogeneic cell therapy could be really a good choice for patients with debilitating chronic diseases. But the problem is that uh, soon after some of these cells have been uh, implanted or injected into the bodies, they were rejected by the body. So then, uh, of course, the whole scientific world was really trying to find how we can solve that uh, that problem. So Siglan's roots are based on the seminal work from Bob Linger and Dan Anderson at MIT, which resulted in many, many, several important publications. And uh, just very quickly, what they were defining was 
how they could solve the problem of encapsulating cells and having cells in durable, viable, and functional in, in the bodies. You are absolutely right that initially the first disease that people were thinking, okay, we know that islet cells, pancreatic islet cells are the one source of producing insulin. And so if we implant islet cells, then we will be curing type 1 diabetes. Well, the fact that those cells being rejected, that was the problem. So many companies and many uh, academic uh, institutions were working to how they could develop a way to encapsulate the cells and, and having those cells being really working as a functional uh, cure. What Sigon uh, discovered and through uh, Bob Langer's uh, lab was that when you conjugate some of the biomaterial uh, that we use to do the encapsulation. Usually we have spheres that are uh, structured with alginate, and the alginates that, the good thing with alginates is, is that uh, you can extract from the, uh, from uh, the ocean, and also there is no enzyme into the body that metabolizes that alginate, so it will be durable into the body. But then uh, Bob Langer uh, did a very big screen to find some small molecules that could be conjugated with those alginate and being able to simply avoid the immune attack and avoid fibrosis. So that is the, is the matrix component that I usually I summarize by saying that the matrix do two things. One, shield cells from the immune attack in fibrosis, and two, allows oxygen and nutrients to come into the spheres where the cells are, and the proteins that are produced inside the spheres to go out. So there is a porosity in those spheres that allows this transport in and out. So I'll stop uh, now, but uh, that's why we call the platform shielded living therapeutics because we really have cells that we have engineered the cells to produce the proteins that we desire encased in those spheres that have this biocompatible matrix with what we call a fibromer which is a novel uh, uh, conjugation that really allows the cells to be living very long and to be viable and functional. What does one of Sigalon's shielded living therapeutics actually consist of? Yeah, so the, the, the platform is consisted on those two elements that I was describing. The first, the cell component. So we be, first, we select human cell lines, and we select those cell lines based on safety, which means they have been used before, durability, efficacy, and also can we scale up uh, the production of those uh, cell lines. And then we engineer those cells using no virus, but we engineer the cells with many genetic engineer techniques for those cells to produce high levels of the proteins that we want. Once we have that high levels, we then 
we have a clone of cells literally producing almost the same thing. So we, we grow those clones and then we then encase those cells uh, into those small spheres, 1.5 millimeter diameter spheres that are formed using this matrix that I described before. And so the cells, they reside inside of those spheres and we then implant those spheres into the body and the place where we decided to implant because there's a very high vascularization and a very high uh, chance to really work well is the intraperitoneal space. So we go in a very brief laparoscopy procedure. We implant uh, some mLs of spheres containing those cells and these spheres, they stay there the whole time and producing the proteins that goes straight into the plasma and do the function that they are required to do. The encapsulation allows nutrients to get to the cells and allows the proteins, the therapeutic proteins that the cells are producing to get outside of the encapsulation to where it's needed in the body. But do these cells expand? Are they a fixed number that eventually need to be replaced? What What's the longevity of these cells? And Yeah, very good. Very Again, very good question. In each sphere, we can put between 25 to 45,000 cells in each sphere. And so in, in each ml, uh, we can have about 300 spheres, again, 1.5 millimeter diameter. So let's say that for a patient with hemophilia, a dose could be 50 ml, 50 ml of spheres containing cells, containing approximately 35,000 cells. The, the specific cell line that I described to you that we selected is such that they don't overgrow. Because, of course, if the cells will keep in growing, this will be a problem into the sphere. But they kind of, uh, they are what we call uh, contact inhibitors. Once they see that there is no space, they don't overgrow, which is a very important element for, uh, for us to really uh, stay very long. Our preclinical studies demonstrated that we have experiments going between six months and one year when we terminated those experiments and when we analyzed the cells, they were still viable, they were still functional. So we believe that there is all possibilities for in humans to stay much, much longer than this. Again, those cells are immortal and the chemistry of the spheres are, is that such chemistry that they will not be degraded or absorbable or anything by the body. One interesting, and going back to your final comment about do you need to redose? Well, we have to see the, the next the future clinical trials we'll do in terms of how long will last. We don't uh, think that we have a potential to last three, five years. Uh, but the great thing is because we don't trigger any immune response, we can redose. So if we lose a little bit of the effect, we can redose with less amount that we put in the first time, or even we can just do a new redose because there is nothing that avoids you to redose different than you have in some other new modalities today. 
Does it matter where in the body these cells are implanted? Is it indication specific where you would do this? Yeah. So our pipeline, we have approximately you are working in 10 different programs. In those programs that we are working, we are working with one eye disease, and of course, in that case, we implant into the vitreous, into the eye. Uh, but in other diseases, all we are really uh, uh, implanting into the peritoneal space for two reasons. One, you have a large area to put the spheres. Second, it's really very high vascularized, which means that the cells will be receiving by diffusion oxygen and nutrients which is absolutely critical for the cells to remain viable and alive. So that is, uh, some in the past, in the big, uh, many, many years ago, some companies and institutions were trying, for example, the pseudocutaneous, that could be considered easier. Uh, I would say that uh, maybe easier, but if the cells don't remain viable or don't stay alive, there is no point. So, and the, the vascularization and the oxygenation in some of these spaces of the body are less uh, ideal than the intraperitoneal space. How invasive is the process of implanting these cells? It's, it's, it's not invasive at all. Then it's, uh, again, we did a, a bunch of experiments uh, with uh, human cadavers to really test and how uh, fast and how invasive it, it, it could be. Uh, don't take less, take less than 15 minutes. You just uh, have two trockers for the laparoscopy. One you kind of uh, see, and the other one you go and implant in, in, on top of the surface of uh, omentus that covers the whole peritoneal space. And then when you close those walls, they close and the sphere is a bit jelly, is sticky, so they stay there. Uh, and some of the uh, animals, the experiments we did uh, after six months, we reopened uh, the abdomen of these animals, and the spheres were very clean. They're in the same, literally in the same position that with the that we have put before. So we think that we talk with many surgeons. Uh, is a very uh, again probably they call. This is a minimal procedure, um, and uh, less than 15 minutes, uh, the patient would be okay. Are you able to control dose in any way? Does biology simply yeah. take care of this? Yeah, so, uh, yes, the answer is yes, and why is the yes? Because uh, as those cells are clonal cells, we have a pretty good understanding of what is the efficacy and the production of these cells. So then it's simply, in simple mathematics, what each cell can produce, how many cells we have in each sphere, how many spheres we have in the body. And so the range, what we call the dose controllability, is a very uh, narrow one. Um, and, and of course, we'll be testing this in our um, very soon uh, phase one, two clinical trials in hemophilia A, where we'll be exactly seeing what is the activity level that we can uh, generate. But we believe uh, that we will have a very good control with the dose, with uh, how we calculated the dose. 
as you mentioned, you're pursuing a, a number of indications, including lysosomal storage diseases, uh, type 1 diabetes, also hemophilia A and B. How did hemophilia A come to be your lead program? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really a, a, a good question. So, one, we wanted to start, uh, there is a, a strategic sequencing now, a definition of a, a pipeline. One, we wanted to start by having cells that doing uh, just protein, um, uh, really, they're producing proteins every single minute. And these proteins are delivered into the plasma. So that in hemophilia is is the is the the, the thing that makes less difficult than, for example, diabetes. And I will be talking about diabetes in a second. But uh, so first, proteins to be delivered into the plasma. And second, there is no sensing in responding with that. So it's a really um, a kind of a protein. Uh, there is no protein regulation, but it's a is a more uh, protein secretion only, which is uh, another important point. Uh, third, all the regulatory endpoints and the primary clinical endpoints for hemophilia is very well defined. And so that makes a, a clinical trial something that we can test very quickly if a person is now producing human factor 8, and we will see this in a very few days, We'll see this, we'll see the results. And so that, uh, uh, having a very defined regulatory pathway was an, uh, an additional um, uh, thing for this. And finally, and probably most important is, despite all the factors that exist today for patients with hemophilia A, still you see a lot of uh, problems in the future of patients still developing joint problems despite the factor replacement. Again, just to make a, a small introduction, so I, I, I was a physician, I was a clinician, I was uh, treating uh, lysosomal storage disorders as well, type 1 diabetes, um, many years ago. And for me, it's how can we change the fear that patients with chronic diseases they have into hope? And and I, I can give you this, uh, my personal story. I also have type 1 diabetes myself for 46 years. And I was thinking, you know, how can I really even encapsulate in a night at literally 30 years ago? So that's, that always makes me, how can we dramatically change the perspective of this patient? So again, I had some previous experience with the hemophilia community and I see that they are still uh, struggling with the with the product that exists today, and 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 I think that, that this is why it was uh, the first disease to to come into our pipeline, followed by as you mentioned the lysosomal storage diseases, and in this case we have some work that we already started with MEPS one mucopolysaccharidose type one and Fabry's disease, uh, and the and the choice of those versus, for example, Gaucher disease, and I was the first doctor in Latin America to be treating a patient with Gaucher disease, have diagnosed more than 500 patients with Gaucher, because I think that really Gaucher is in a very, very good place today. Patients have alternatives, oral drugs, infusion, IV, 
So they have multiple choices for them, and, and the need is not that clear, which it is still for MPS and for Fabry's disease. So that was, uh, and in terms of uh, protein secretion, these diseases are also protein secretion, but the proteins, they need to go uh, from plasma into the cells where the cells, where act the metabolization of those uh, substrates that are basically the hallmark of those diseases. So again, a, a, a little bit more complex than what I described for hemophilia. And finally, with type 1 diabetes, of course, we wanted to put a cell that not only secretes insulin, but knows when to stop secreting insulin. So it's what we call this sensing and responding. So proteins are delivered after responding to an endogenous promoter, in this case, the glucose level. So it's very important to be really with a high vascularization like in the intraperitoneal space. So the cells will be sensing glucose and then the cells will be uh, sending uh, and producing insulin in the amount and the time that is needed for those patients. Well, let's talk about hemophilia A. I think most people are aware that there's long been factor replacement therapies available and, and may think of this as a, a disease that's fairly well controlled. But what is not only the cost, but the burden of living with hemophilia A and using the standard of care that's available today? And how might your cells change that? Yeah. So, the, again, hemophilia A, when we are talking about, there are approximately uh, 20,000 people in the U.S. There are approximately about 200,000 people in the world with hemophilia A, uh, a genetic disease, um, in which people have reduced levels of uh, factor eight. And the reduced levels define the severity of the condition that clinically is described by being severe, which people that have less than 1% of the factor eight activity, moderate, one to five, or mild between five to, uh, I would say, less than 30, 40% of factor activity. The big problem of factor replacement is the, the, the phenomenon of the roller coaster, which means few hours after the person injects, and usually it's a self-injection, IV self-injection, uh, patients receive the dose, and so immediately, a few hours later, they have very high levels of uh, activity of the factor eight, 100% or close to 100%. But soon after, this activity goes down, and of course, uh, patients, there are still patients that have to dose IV every day, more severe cases, more frequent they have to dose. In some other cases, they may have to dose one to three times a week uh, to really get more time over the number that could be a good number for them to not have symptoms. And the main symptom is really bleedings that can occur into the joints, can occur into the brain, and can occur in other places. So uh, the statistics shows that 
approximately 60% of patients that are under factor replacement therapy, 20 years later, they still develop what we call the joint deformities, which means they had microbleedings or bleedings into the joints that caused a chronic complications that could be really very debilitating. So that is why I think that one, it's a lot burden in terms of a, how many times the, the patients need to treat themselves, to be injected, but because how the half-life of these proteins are so fast, they go into the, the where they have to go too quickly, and this is why you, you, you see the problem of uh, going low in terms of activity very, very, very fast. That is the problem that we saw. We solved the convenience. We solved the burden. We solved the problem of this uh, roller coaster where in, with our technology, we could have a flat dosing levels of these proteins, which we believe could be, uh, uh, as a consequence, giving, giving really a positive outcome for patients. I know it's early days for your therapies, but what's known about their safety and efficacy at this point? So, again, all the preclinical studies that we demonstrated, we were able to, uh, in preclinical studies, demonstrating that we have some techniques to, uh, and there are some animal models with hemophilia A, and we were able to uh, to go to normal bleeding time compared to control rodents and using the cells um, uh, and implanting the spheres with the cells. We are also, and you talked about this before, about the dose controllability. We could test that different number of spheres could give really very different in terms of activity level as predicted. So nothing in terms of a, if we put a low dose, we don't see a high um, activity level and vice versa. So high dose, we see very high numbers of activity levels. And also in the uh, preclinical studies that um, we, we conducted, we demonstrated a flat and sustainable levels of a human plasma uh, factor 8 um, factor over 191 days in mice, which is a very, uh, a very, very good thing. And when we expanded those spheres, the cells were still alive. We conducted as well, in addition to rodent, more than 60 uh, uh, primates uh, studies, and we confirmed what we saw in rodents. And those, so we confirmed that there was a, uh, the intraperitoneal space was a good thing. We demonstrated that those cells were producing uh, human factor 8 less than 7 days after the implantation. And we also confirmed that the viability of cells after a certain time was very, very high, close to 98, 99%. So again, all of these uh, experiments, and, and besides these, uh, hundreds of experiments testing safety, and we had a really a, a pristine a safety studies that shows that we have a good chance to really uh, work well for patients, and that's what we are now, uh, the next steps was in hemophilia A. 
there are uh, a number of, of gene therapies working their way through the clinic, including ones for hemophilia A. Is there a case to make for why your shielded cells might be a preferable approach? Yeah, again, thanks for the, for the question. Uh, and, and I did work with gene therapy before, so uh, I think gene therapy share uh, with us the same steady PK and, again, the same sustainable and uh, flat dosing levels. So we in gene therapy, we have exactly the same onto this. But there are some differences between our technology and uh, gene therapy. And I, I would say that there are limitations on gene therapy in terms of uh, eligibility, uh, which patients that have antibodies, the anti-AAV, anti the vector that is being utilized to bring the, uh, the vectors, if, 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 and usually you can have between 30 to 45% of patients having antibodies against that, this will be a problem for them. Also, patients that have other associated diseases like HIV or liver disease uh, that will not be eligible to gene therapy, as well as patients that are pediatric patients, which is a very large population because uh, we don't see exactly all the chronic uh, effects on the gene therapy uh, when you are implanting IV to have this unknowns of the gene therapy that I think that one, we, we are, ourselves are controlled in one space. Number two, we control those. Uh, we may be as durable as gene therapy, uh, but we have the possibility to redose. We even have a possibility to be retrieved. And we don't need at all any mood suppression. And you see that in some of the gene therapy trials, they are using some uh, immunosuppressive regimens to make sure that the patient is not reacting against the gene therapy. Uh, and final, final difference is that, uh, and this may be important for a disease that is spread to all the world, is that uh, I would say off the shelf and uh, with low uh, cost of goods, which means the manufacturing cost for our technology may be significant less than for gene therapy. And what's the path forward? So path forward is now we are we we have filed uh, our uh, with the regulatory agencies to start our phase one, phase two. Uh, we plan to start in the next few months, and this uh, will be uh, in sites in U in the U.S., in U.K., um, Germany as well. Uh, patients with severe and moderate hemophilia A is a small um, safety efficacy study of about 12, 15 patients, but this will give us tremendous um, responses in terms of uh, not only safety, but also efficacy and durability. And after that, we can progress into a, a phase three, and, and we hope that uh, this technology will be available for patients in the future. Rosario Vivaldi, President and CEO of Sigalon Therapeutics. Rosario, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. 
For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.